This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. of radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. My name's Josh from the Wild West Extravaganza. No Texas traditionalists, revisionists, lay historians, academic historians, or journalists were injured in the recording of this episode. So Michael, What's going on? All right. How's it going? I hope everybody out there is doing well. Let's get going here. A few months ago, when I thought I was ready to record what was planned to be these current episodes that I'm working on, that just keep growing and expanding and shifting into something a little bit more involved than I had planned on, the news broke concerning a lawsuit involving the Texas State Historical Association. Now, at first, I thought, oh, great. Here it is. The apparent culmination of several months of fighting over history in the state in various areas. And as I've discovered, fighting within the top ranks of the association itself. As we'll see in a little while, elements of what's going on have been percolating for a lot longer than that, or it appears to be that that's the case. Now, historical associations and preservation societies are very important institutions. They're valuable to us because they help us to preserve, collect, research, and interpret historical information. And they also collect and preserve and research on items. And in many cases, these associations also publish journals that share historical articles. The American Historical Association was created in 1894, And not long after that came the creation of the Texas State Historical Association in 1897. It is the oldest institution of its type in Texas. And it has provided many great resources and publications for students of Texas history for over 125 years. The association helps design curricula and sponsors educational workshops for kindergarten to 12th grade teachers and students. It publishes many of the books Texans find at state parks or historic site gift shops. And it makes available, something I've already covered before, the extremely valuable handbook of Texas online that I, as I said, I've shared on a previous episode through resources like the handbook these teacher workshops and Texas History Day and a lot more. 
things. The association contributes to the efforts of at least 15,000 teachers as they set about to teach uh, a, at least one and a half million students. As a page on the TSHA website shares, through several impactful programs and publications, it fulfills its mission. And among those are the Southwestern Historical Quarterly, which is an esteemed journal, and it serves as a platform for scholars to share their research and findings. And it advances our knowledge and appreciation of Texas history, as the website says. Uh, the association also has its own press, which is the state's longest-running publisher of books on Texas history. And it produces some, like I mentioned before, a lot of high-quality, award-winning publications. And it also publishes the Texas Almanac. And it in itself is a valuable resource. It is just filled with rich information about the state of Texas. The association also has an annual meeting at which historians, educators, and enthusiasts for Texas history get together in cities throughout the state. And as the association says on its website, this event serves as a hub for the exchange of ideas, fostering collaborations, and inspiring innovative research that expands our understanding of Texas history. The TSHA also has a junior historian program that aims at engaging young students in getting interested in studying and preserving Texas history. It sponsors Texas History Day, which is a statewide competition for students to showcase their research projects on different aspects of Texas history. It promotes historical inquiry, critical thinking, and presentation skills for young people. It also sponsors Texas Talks, which is a series of lectures and discussions by renowned historians. And this provides educational opportunities for the public, you and me, to gain deeper insights into our state's past. These are just a few of the things that the association is involved with. But despite its importance, and I saw this next number in an article in Texas Monthly that's dealing with what we're looking at here. Despite its importance, its membership has seen a pretty drastic decline from 5,000 members about a decade ago to now only 2,500 or somewhere in that range. And that number shocked me when I saw that. I tried to find more detailed current numbers, but I wasn't able to. But it was really surprising because out of a state of about 30 million people, only a handful are members of this great organization. Out of you know the number I mentioned just a while ago, there's 15,000 teachers or somewhere in that area in the state that teach Texas history. And this means just 
a very small percentage are involved in this organization that works to help provide resources for their efforts in teaching history. That seemed very surprising to me. So we're dealing with, when we're talking about this controversy that I'm getting to, it's just a handful of people that are actually members of the organization that acts for the entire state of Texas. Now, the controversies we will discuss are considered by some to be the reason there's been a big drop in membership. And that very well could be so. The divisiveness that we've faced in the past several years and the attention on academic historians and revisionist history could very well cause people to, to leave it. But I want to encourage you to consider being a member of the association. There are all different kinds of membership levels that uh, can, you can become a member. And I encourage you to do this, not only to do it because it is great and you can be supporting and being involved in even if you want and advocating for the important work of the association. But there are also several benefits associated with uh, being a member that gives history lovers access to different resources that you can go and just, I'm not a shill for the association. I just, uh, I'm, I'm surprised that so few people are involved with it as members. And I encourage you to go check it out on their website and see if it's something you'd be interested in doing. Because if you're listening to this podcast, you are interested in Texas history. So there you go. And really, just the access to the publications past, uh, you have access to every single issue of the Historical Association's uh, Southwestern Historical Quarterly. Every issue of it you can use and read. And there are many more. And if you were to join the association, maybe in some way you could help have a say in what's currently happening. As a member, you would have an ability to have input. You could communicate with the people involved and say, hey, I think this is the way it should go, or maybe we should go do this. But I digress. Controversy is not necessarily something new for the Texas State Historical Association. As the Handbook of Texas says in its article on the association, it is a nonprofit organization that has its offices on the University of Texas at Austin campus. And it started there on the University of North Texas at Austin on February 13th, 1897, when 10 individuals met to form this association. Their original purpose was they wanted to set up an organization that would promote the discovery, collection, preservation, and publication of historical material pertaining to Texas. There were academic and non-academic historians involved from the beginning. And that blend of membership has been a part of what its identity has been in the several decades that has existed. George P. Garrison, who was 
a historian at University of Texas, Eugene Diggs and Charles Corner set up the original constitution and they invited about 250 people to attend a meeting held in Austin on March 2nd, 1897. There were about 25 people in attendance when the association had its first formal meeting and they elected this first president, the first vice president. The first president was Orrin M. Roberts, who had been governor of Texas. Uh, George Garrison, the historian, was elected secretary and librarian. And Lester G. Bugby was named treasurer and corresponding secretary. I've come across some interesting writings by Bugby himself that I'm going to use someday. And, you know, they had... They met in the office of the uh, Commissioner of Agriculture, Insurance, Statistics, and History in the Capitol. Now, the when this meeting was being held, the lighting system in the Capitol had failed. So they carried on with the meeting using the light of two lanterns. And as the Handbook of Texas says, lanterns lighting the path of historical discovery have served as a symbol of the association ever since. Now, here's where I'm getting to the controversy. There were at least three women, Dora Fowler Arthur, Julia Lee Sinks, and Bride Neal Taylor. They were present in the first gathering of the association. And John S. Rip Ford. Go look up him and see about his colorful life. A lot of these people that were involved in the establishment of the association had been players in several previous years of the state's history. And he, see, he wanted to call the women lady members and have that a part of the Constitution rather than just members. And he got really concerned over the use of the term fellow because he was adamant that there was no way they could apply that term to a woman. Garrison and the women tried to change his mind, but he wasn't going to have it. And he just stormed from the meeting as the handbook of Texas says. So yeah, from the very beginning, there has been some controversy about things And we are facing it again, which gets us to early May 2023, when the executive director of the association, J.P. Bryan, secured a temporary restraining order against Nancy Baker Jones, who is the association president. So we have the executive director making a legal action against Nancy Baker Jones. Now, I would say Jones is, in addition to being the association president, she's also a historian and president of the Ruth Weingarten Foundation for Women's History in Austin. Now, why did this happen? Well, that's the interesting part, the tricky part. And I'm going to share a lot of answers to that question that conflict with each other, depending on who's giving the answer. For example, according to Josephine Lee in the Texas Observer article about this, quote, Walter Bunger, 
TSHA's chief historian for the past seven years, said the organization now includes far more diverse voices, topics, and approaches to documenting Texas history than it did when the Handbook of Texas started in the 1950s, when it focused mainly on white elite men. Now, according to this article, Bunger is quoted as saying that at a time when the organization is becoming increasingly diverse, Executive Director J.P. Bryan, quote, wants to take the TSHA and Texas history in a different direction and in doing so is alienating its members. That's one point of view. Others say that it's the acts of activist historians and a spread of negativity about Texas and Texas history through these academic historians' works and their involvement with the association. Others say that is why members are being alienated. Now, J.P. Bryan, Dr. Bunger, and Nancy Baker-Jones are central to this sad state of affairs. Note that the article says that Bunger says Bryan's actions are alienating its members. As I just said, you will find elsewhere where it is claimed that the drop in membership and the alienation of members is due to the approach of Dr. Bunger and other academic historians to promote, quote, far more diverse voices, topics, and approaches to documenting Texas history than it did when the Handbook of Texas started, when it was focused mainly on white elite men. That statement on white elite men is a key element to this story. It breaks down to a battle between what is called traditional Texas history and revisionist or progressive Texas history. Also, from what I've read, there is also some conflict between Mr. Bryan and Bunger and Baker Jones that might be described as a more as a conflict of personality and of goals. I can't say, because I'm not directly involved and I don't want to make a claim that I can't substantiate and stand behind. And as an aside, I've been seeing the phrase real Texas history bandied about by people on both sides. As in this statement, I'm okay with teachers doing that as long as it focuses on real Texas history. This phrase is pretty common and I've seen it being used and shared by people on both sides of the issue. What they stand for is real Texas history. It's a pretty common phrase, and I've, like I said, I've seen it, and I've, I've, heck, I've even used it, I think. I know I have. But I'm sorry to say this to everyone involved, but from my perspective, there is no, quote, real Texas history. Or I, there is, but it probably isn't what you think it is. There is Texas history. And all of us big and brash and beautiful and messy glory. It's it's something to think about. You know, there are a lot of ways to to look at it. Uh, But I do notice that usually when somebody says real Texas history, they're making a statement about how something somebody else is doing is not right. It's not should not be included and shouldn't be part of the conversation. 
And the fact of the matter is there are so many different ways to approach the history of not only the state of Texas, but our entire nation. So many different facets of history that have contributed to making the present that it's really audacious and kind of arrogant for me to say I am sharing real Texas history. And see, now I'm getting ahead of myself there. I need to stay focused. When I go off away from my notes, I lose track and uh, I start spiraling like that. And uh, yeah, let's get back to this lawsuit. The Texas State Historical Association Executive Director is J.P. Bryan. He's a retired oil man, a philanthropist, historian, historic preservationist, and he's also been a past president of the association. Now, a lot of you probably already know where I'm leading with this, but he has a very deep connection to Texas history that a lot of us don't have. He is a direct descendant of Moses Austin, the father of the father of Texas, Stephen F. Austin, which makes him a lateral descendant, which is a term I had not heard before. He's a lateral descendant of Stephen F. Austin. His uncle, Guy M. Bryan, who I've talked about before in previous episodes, was one of the founding members and secretary for the Texas State Historical Association. And he served on its board from its foundation in 1897 to 1901. Now, Mr. Bryan's father was president from 1965 to 1967. And as I said, Mr. Bryan himself was president from 1982 to 1983. And he has very strong ties to the association and Texas history. I don't personally know many people that have that strong of a a connection or trace their heritage back that far. I know a few. Seth Jones, who's a one of the musicians, I share his music for both him as Seth Jones and as with his band Americarnage. He is a descendant of Anson Jones, who is a president of Texas. Melvin E. Edwards, who is an author that has joined me on the podcast before and has his own podcast now. He traces his family line back just as far as both of them but for him to trace back his heritage was a lot more work because his ancestors were listed as property now i mentioned that because mr edwards investment and tie to the history of texas is just as deep and just as strong as these other two gentlemen's whose Ancestors were leaders of the state. If there is a real Texas history, it is a history that does include the story of Mr. Edwards's ancestors, right along with the stories of Mr. Bryan's and Mr. Jones's ancestors. That's real Texas history to me. But again, I'm stepping off away from my notes I don't know Mr. Brian and the closest I've ever got to knowing him before this issue was seeing him a couple of times on one of my favorite television shows the Texas Bucket List 
and it's hosted by a gentleman named Shane McAuliffe, and it's a great show. I encourage you to go check it out, and you can even go online and watch the couple of episodes in which Mr. Brian was on there. Well, the first time was when the show visited the Gage Hotel and Marathon, and then when the show visited him at the Bryan Museum in Galveston. The episode that has the Gage Hotel and Mr. Bryan on it was from Season 10, Episode 9, on May 1st, 2018. You can watch it on the Texas Bucket List website. And the Bryan Museum in Galveston episode was from Season 15, Episode 6, March 8th, 2021 and in the more recent episode Mr. Brian made some statements that are pretty relevant to the discussion now and, and presents his point of view regarding his family's relationship his relationship to Texas history and how he views the need to share the, the narrative and his viewpoints related to that narrative and I was going to just quote it or give an approximation to his quote, but I, then I realized, hey, why don't I just let him say it for himself? So I pulled the audio because what could be better than hearing him in his own voice sharing something instead of just me? So here's Mr. Brian during the episode in Marathon. We have the greatest history of any state in the Union, and that's just not some Texas brag. Now, what Mr. Brian said there is something pretty common in Texas. It's something that, uh, like T.R. Fehrenbach said, Texas is unique because it has a history that is different. And part of that, I would say, is because historians and people that love Texas history for decades and decades have shared so close attention to its past and in shaping the narrative of Texas being unique and special. So it's kind of like its own self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, that's probably not the right term, but you get what I'm getting at. This next clip has Mr. Brian again making a statement about the importance and uniqueness of Texas history. A historical adventure uh, that's not matched by any other in world history. And uh, the next one here has Mr. Bryan speaking about his family and his relationship to Stephen F. Austin and the importance of Texas history and their relationship to that heritage. And I think it's, it's very um, important to include. We as a family have always said collectively, look, it's nice to have a connection to Stephen F. Austin or whomever or if you're related to Sam Houston, but what's that say about you? Nothing, except you're related to him. It says something about him. But what are you going to do to uphold his sacrifice or his contribution? I think that excerpt, that statement, shows in a way that his deep connection and deep respect for not just his family's past, but for the state of Texas itself and its history. And now there are some that will point out that this Texas exceptionalism and point to it as a negative for him. 
and say, well, he's not considering all of Texas's history is deeper than that. But this next quote I'll pull shows that he he does recognize that Texas has a long history before 1836. When you think about it, a large measure of our history is Spanish, and they dominated the landscape and the, and the geography here for a period of 300 years. Next up, we have a statement uh, made by Mr. Bryan where he explains why he established the Bryan Museum down there in Galveston, and it's something more than just about being a museum. He He does have a concern with what's going on in history right now. We really had a passion to try to invoke a sentiment that we think is rapidly diminishing about the importance of history uh, in our educational system. And to ignore history, we do so, we think, with great jeopardy. You you hear in this statement, we're kind of getting to his concerns and the way he approaches history, Texas history specifically. And it feeds into what's going on now with this current controversy with the state historical association. And this final clip really drives home Mr. Bryan's feelings on what's going on. The history that was shaped on this landscape is like none other in the world. The West proved that the Constitution could travel, that those laws and that system of liberty and freedom could go anywhere in the world. We were made great not as a nation because we were just lucky. I mean, we had people thoughtfully create a whole environment in which freedom was at its core. We are gradually giving that freedom away and we're ignoring the sacrifice and responsibility that has to come with freedom. But if we're looking for inspiration and guidance into how we should conduct our lives, history's full of people who have done marvelous things should, and should inspire us. Now, there are a lot of people that take exception with Mr. Bryan's viewpoints like this that he's sharing here. But I don't think anybody can disagree with what he's saying about how we can find inspiration from people in the past. And I don't know that he's just saying that it's only people like Stephen F. Austin and Sam Houston and other people like that. We can all agree that there are lots of people in our history, some people that haven't been given that much attention in the past, that are inspiring. Now, to go back to what he said about the significance of being part of a family of such important people in the history of Texas, Moses and Stephen Austin, he recognizes that it's great. But I think the, the key part of that statement is he recognizes that he and others shouldn't rest on their long deceased relatives, laurels and achievements. What matters, and I am paraphrasing, is what he and other family members and we can contribute to Texas now. Now, I hope he's making the right decision to take this legal action. A lot of people are 
not that happy with it. I'm not really happy with it. Because if he's not, it will not be a positive contribution. So why is he doing it? So let's dig into that a little bit more. So on May 1st, Judge Kerry Nevis, I guess that's how you say his name. It's that or Nevis, I suppose, of the 10th District Court in Galveston. And as some people like to point out, he is a Republican. Um, Judge Nevis granted Brian's request for a restraining order to stop a board meeting called by President Jones. Brian said that Jones intended to have him fired from his position as executive director or place restrictions on his authority. Opponents to Mr. Brian like to point out that he was only the interim executive director. This is significant because, as we'll see in a minute, the role of executive director is a part of this drama. Josephine Lee's Texas Observer article shared that Brian's lawsuit accuses TSHA President Nancy Baker Jones of being intoxicated with her thirst for power, violating the organization's bylaws when she nominated former teacher Mary Jo O'Rear to the board. Brian claims in the lawsuit that O'Rear's nomination tipped the balance in favor of academic versus non-academic members on the board and, quote, emasculated the non-academic membership. Brian claims that there are currently 12 academics and eight non-academics, but other TSHA board members count nine academics and ten non-academics on the board. The status of O'Rear is a key element of this issue that we're looking at. At a 2023 meeting of the association, when O'Rear's nomination came to a floor vote, Brian sought to nominate former Texas Supreme Court Justice Wallace Jefferson. Now, descriptions of the meeting depict a scene of disruption and outrage, not normally what you would expect at something like a historical association meeting. But the spirit of Rip Ford carries on today. There was some outrage. But in the end, Mary Jo O'Rear was appointed to the board. O'Rear had been an academic historian from 1999 to 2005, having worked during those years at Texas A&M University and Corpus Christi Del Mar College. Some count her as an academic. Others say that she isn't because it was so long ago that she held those positions. Brian's lawsuit against Jones and the TSHA alleges that the board was operating outside its authority and could not act on any business because it was violating its bylaws. It also claimed Jones had slandered and libeled Brian and noted that he was seeking as much as $1 million in damages. The petition included references to allegedly defamatory emails sent by Jones and stated, quote, among other things, she has falsely accused him of assaulting people all focused in her effort to fabricate a basis to attack Mr. Bryan. Apparently, in reference to the encounter Bryan had with an audience member at the annual meeting. I've heard that Bryan has been called a thug, among other things. The, the lawsuit asked for an immediate hearing on a request for a temporary restraining order against board action. And shortly before the meeting that was to be held on May 1st, District Court Judge Kerry Nevis granted this order. 
Now, Mr. Bryan himself told the Texas Observer that he filed the lawsuit to stop the board meeting when he found out he might be fired. Quote, she, meaning Jones, told several individuals I know that I should resign and she had the votes to see that happen. He continued saying the purpose of that meeting would have greatly impaired my ability to continue to perform as the executive director and the board that would be voting on whatever the final proposition would be is not properly constituted in accordance without bylaws. Brian also told the Texas Observer, I don't want this to be a divisive fight. I would like for us to all come together and resolve this in a way that best helps the future of the Texas State Historical Association so I can see everybody get an opportunity to tell their history and have an honest debate about it. He stressed that his goal was, quote, to get the financial house in order and to, quote, correct the imbalance on the board. Others don't believe that is all that Mr. Bryan and others want. TSHA board member Stephanie Cole, a history professor at the University of Texas at Arlington, started a GoFundMe effort to help Jones pay her legal expenses after these actions. Now, the association has long been committed to maintaining balance on the board between academic historians and non-academic historians. It's just been part of its DNA since the beginning. Now, at the time of the restraining order, the board had, depending on how you define academic versus non-academic, either 12 academics and eight non-academics, or others would argue the divide is much closer to balance. Some would argue that because some of the 12 were no longer employed in an academic position that they should be considered non-academics. What's going on? How did something that seems so simple to many people get to this point? As an outsider, it would be easy to see it as part of a long struggle between the traditionalist and revisionist camps. But perhaps it is something more. According to Lee in the Texas Observer, the attempts by conservative Texas legislators to curtail tenure and to eliminate diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and policies in higher education are considered a part of the controversy and that academic members of the TSHA are afraid of losing their jobs if they speak up. One is quoted as saying, we are potential targets just for the type of work that we do and the type of people that we are. It can be really scary and a lot of us are just trying to do our work and keep our head down. That is part of the story that's being pushed. Others are telling me that no, This is simply about following the bylaws. Brian also stated in an article in the Gallison Daily News that the academic narrative is one that demeans the Anglo efforts in selling the western part of the United States for the purpose of spreading freedoms for all. They have a whole different narrative to describe the event. He and others are concerned with what they call the academic trend to focus on victimization and negativity in Texas history. Now, Mr. Bryan insists that he has no problem with telling the truth about Texas history, which I assume means some of the more negative events that have happened, but he believes that there is a danger by focusing increasingly on demonizing Texas heroes. Now, hero 
that word itself is a part of the controversy and controversies that have been going on for quite a while in Texas history. Mr. Bryan has repeatedly decried the villainization and destruction of traditional heroes and said, quote, our state had some remarkable people making its history and academics disagree. John Willingham, who is a historian and writer, who I've reached out to for thoughts on this process, don't necessarily completely agree with Mr. Bryan's statement. Mr. Willingham wrote, Heroes haven't been villainized, but are seen more fully. Others have faded. New heroes arise. Ah, history. My thought on the matter is that when you get to such issues on who is a hero and who is not, we really are moving beyond history into the realm of memory, into this collective memory, and the battle is over what interpretation of history is to be embraced. We're getting into the Texas thing, this part of our identity. And when people that were once, without a doubt, viewed as heroes, have things pointed out about them, in a negative way and the focus is all negative that can be seen as a threat when you have embraced this notion of opportunity and spreading of freedom as part of the story of Texas the truth of the matter is that no one can dictate what you believe and I will add who you regard as a hero is a matter of belief and interpretation but there's more to this as you'll see. Information regarding heroes such as Jim Bowie and his participation in the illegal slave trade with John Lafitte at Campeche on Galveston Island wasn't unknown in the past. I've seen it in much older Texas histories, very old Texas histories. The difference is past generations just weren't bothered with the knowledge and preferred to focus on his bravery and heroism. Recent work due to, what have you, societal changes and recent events has had a tendency to place greater focus on those negative aspects of these people's lives. Mr. Bryan is correct in that point. Earlier generations just did not care about Bowie's slave trading escapades. And the evil that was tied up in that. Many, many, many people today whose voices would have been shut out or silenced several decades ago do consider it as something that should be stressed. That, I suppose, is an example of how interpretation changes, perspectives change, how current presentism and current events do shape the way we look at history when our values of today are being applied when earlier generations values were just much different that I think might also be a distraction between popular memory and our quote myths and an understanding of history our predecessors were human they were complicated they were fascinating and they were often very flawed just like we are that is what makes the study of history even more interesting to me. Another of the issues of disagreement going on 
is over the published content in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly. Some argue that the quarterly is increasingly reflecting what Brian and others describe as a culture of negativity that pervades academic historians' work. Sonia Hernandez, a current board member and associate professor of history at Texas A&M University, told the Texas Observer that the distinctions of academic versus non-academic board members is, quote, beside the point because the board does not control the type of historical scholarship the organization publishes. She added that, quote, the board of directors and the TSHA has never been in the business of censoring. John Willingham, who I brought up earlier, who's an author, historian, and essayist, recently shared a detailed examination of dozens of recent SWHQ articles. Now, you can go to his website to see what his findings are. But in a nutshell, John looked at over 75 articles, I think, in the last that I saw, published in the quarterly between July 2018 and July 2023. Now, to do this, he, it was a very involved process that I, I respect the work he's put into it. He created a Word document that listed the information about the authors and article with an excerpt and a summary and an Excel doc that shows the volume and issue number. It shows the gender, the race, and credentials of the authors. It also shares the century of interest and highlights the relatively small number of articles that are clearly not traditional. Yellow highlights in the spreadsheet are for subjects related to black history. Red is for Latino Tejano history. And orange was for women's history. He found that about 25% of the articles when he initially started investigating, he found that only about a quarter were on the above subjects, but several of the articles are not controversial in tone or substance. At least one, his own article in the quarterly, takes issue with some modern arguments about slavery. Unsurprisingly, he found that there was a predominance of academic and male authors. He wrote, quote, What the figures cannot show is how many submissions the quarterly received from non-academics, blacks, Latinos, and women. So, for example, showing 13 Latino authors could be good, bad, or average, depending on the ratio of accepted articles from Latinos to the number of submissions from Latinos. Also, while there are 75 articles, there are more than 75 authors because some articles had multiple authors. His initial view after all of this was that the quarterly is eclectic, mostly academic, and not excessively focused on race and gender, given the significance of those issues. He then expanded the number of articles for his review, and he wrote that he had first only included such articles if they were, for lack of a better word, controversial in some way. He then added others that were related to race and gender, but were not so pointed in their arguments. And after doing this review, he ended up with the estimate that 34.7% of the articles were on race and gender. Now, that's a significant number, but definitely not representative of a takeover of the content with controversial or negative articles with race and gender. Except it is too much for people that don't want to see them included at all. And I'm not saying that's the case. This is just what he's found. Uh, take a look yourselves at his statistics and see how you 
you think it plays out. Now, Walter L. Bunger, who I've already introduced earlier, he is a professor at the University of Texas who has served as the chief historian for the Texas State Historical Association. He is often mentioned as a leading example of this academic trend, especially because of his quote that was printed in USA Today a while back about the Alamo. He was also involved with some work that involved the use of the word hero in regard to Texas history and specifically the Alamo. I'll address that in a minute. A Texas Monthly article added, When Brian became a target of the progressive members of TSHA, those in his camp launched a counteroffensive to get rid of TSHA's chief historian, Walter Bunger, a progressive. Bunger, a University of Texas history professor who declined a request for an interview, has drawn the ire of more traditional historians and history buffs for his controversial statements to reporters. He infamously called the Alamo a symbol of what it meant to be white when Donald Trump visited the landmark and has said that traditional history undergirds white supremacy. Bunger's five-year contract as chief historian, a joint project of TSHA and the University of Texas, expired last year. Critics argue that there's been no movement to evaluate him or consider a replacement while he continues to draw a salary of at least $150,000 a year from university, as well as additional research compensation from UT for his TSHA role. For relief, the TSHA net traditionalists turned to allies in the Texas legislature. Former Texas Land Commissioner and TSHA member Jerry Patterson who said he thinks the association is tilting too far towards those vilifying the state's historical figures, drafted a rider to be attached to the appropriations bill. And basically, if it passes, it could kill a significant source of TSHA funding, $480,000 biannually from the Texas Historical Commission, which is the state agency that's responsible for historic preservation, which the organization uses this money to publish the popular Texas Almanac. Patterson also says that he has gotten agreement from two key state house and Senate budget writers to make that funding conditional on the association following its bylaws with respect to the balance of academic versus non-academic board members. He said, being an activist and a historian are mutually exclusive endeavors. Too many on the TSHA board are full-time activists masquerading as historians. We'll touch on activist historians and what that means later on. The reality is is that activist historians are in no way new. And there's a long history of them for over 100 years. We just haven't paid that close attention to that. Now, Dr. Bunger, who's been a focus by some, he earned his Ph.D. in 1979 from Rice University. And for a period of time, he taught at Texas A&M. And then since 2017, he's been a member of the faculty at University of Texas at Austin. His research focus has mostly been on the connections between Texas and the South, Texas identity, historiography, the role of memory, the influence of borders, and the construction and evolution of culture in the Southwest. I've personally used a 
quite a few of his books and articles, and I value his scholarship, especially Secession and the Union in Texas, and two books he co-edited and contributed to with Robert Calvert, 1991's Texas Through Time and 2011's Beyond Texas Through Time. The latter two are both valuable for learning about the many approaches to interpreting Texas history and the changes to Texas history interpretations over the years. There has been no static, real Texas history. All of these and his research into history and memory are especially valuable for these recent episodes that I've been working on for the current topic because his close look into these topics contribute to the comments he has made that have drawn criticism, dispassionately commenting on historical and memory-related topics can cause problems when commenting on subjects that people are very passionate about, such as the Alamo. In my personal opinion, he's an excellent scholar. What he does as himself in a public role, he has the right to do it, to say anything he wants, if he wants to inject himself into current things going on politically or anywhere else. He's got the right just like everybody else does. But for context, let's go back a little bit more. Back in September 2018, the Texas State Board of Education tasked a work group to advise it on several social studies curriculum revisions that included a proposal for educators to not call the Alamo defenders heroic. Now, that was a big Texas history no-no for many, including Governor Greg Abbott, who was at the time running for re-election. The committee described accurately the word heroic as a value-charged word, and that part of the problem with the word heroic may be that it's too simplistic. Dr. Bunger has been quoted as saying that Quote, many times the Alamo gets boiled down, as it often does in movies, to the Mexicans are the bad guys and the good guys are good Anglos and coonskin caps, end quote. That, I'll add, is the common trend in the historic memory of Texas since the days of the Texas Revolution. And that is a very important thing to take note of because that is a root cause of some of the current controversy as well. Tejanos and Mexicans fought on the side of Texas independence, and some died at the Alamo. That being said, and it is a historic fact that can't be denied, generations of Tejanos, or Mexican Texans, grew up with the simplistic breakdown of Texians, Anglos, being the good guys, and Mexicans being the bad guys. I had somebody comment on... Uh, one of my episodes recently about how growing up, that's the way, as a Mexican Texan, he was viewed as a, and treated as a Mexican and that he was one of the bad guys when it came to the Alamo, or his family had been. After public hearings, the Board of Education decided that the answer was for the Texas history curriculum to acknowledge, quote, the heroism of the diverse defenders who gave their lives at the Alamo. That was back in 2018. Now jump forward to 2020 when President Donald Trump was making an appearance at the Texas town of Alamo, not the Alamo in San Antonio. 
Bunger was quoted in the USA Today article as saying the Alamo had been used as a symbol of Anglo-Saxon preeminence. The Alamo became the symbol of what it meant to be white. Now, for anyone that hasn't been awake for a few decades, the Alamo is, for many, 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 many people, as close as you can get to holy ground in the state of Texas, and not just because it was the mission of San Antonio de Valero. You know the old saying, don't mess with Texas? Implicit in this statement is that you do not mess with the Alamo. And messing with the Alamo is what Dr. Bunger is accused of because of the USA Today article and what three journalists definitely did with the publication of a 2021 book titled Forget the Alamo. We'll get to that in the future. Now, this USA Today article was written by India Yancey Bragg, and it focused on President Trump's visit to the town of Alamo, Texas, over 200 miles south of the site in San Antonio. According to the White House, the visit was made to, quote, mark the completion of more than 400 miles of border wall. A promise made, a promise kept, and his administration's efforts to reform our broken immigration system, end quote. Yancey Bragg used the article to make connections of the president's visit to Alamo, Texas, and the assertion that the Battle of the Alamo is being used to commemorate whiteness, using quotes from Dr. Bunger and another University of Texas historian, Jorge Canizares Esguera. Canizares Esguera's statements strike me as what would have been more inflammatory to Texas as traditionalists and exceptionalists. Now, Dr. Bunger's statements focused on symbolism and intellectual history, with a focus on how, over time, the Alamo as a symbol represented much more than the ideas of freedom and bravery that most are familiar with. The Texas myth is associated with, and Texas history is associated with the story of bravery and freedom at the Alamo. Yes, but in popular consciousness and, and identity, it was shaped into something else at different times in our past. For example, Yancey Bragg wrote that works like that of D.W. Griffith and others in the very early 1900s depicted, quote, white virtuous Texans against racist caricatures of Mexicans on screen. Dr. Bunger stated that it became in some ways a sort of symbol of Anglo-Saxon preeminence. The Alamo became this symbol of what it meant to be white. Now, what we're talking about here is things that were created decades ago and how it used the Alamo in creating depictions of people and historic events, and that is what was, I think, being talked about. Now, Canizares Esquera shared an interpretation that is apparently gaining more and more traction by arguing that the Anglo-Texans and Tejanos were fighting, as the article shares, quote, in part because the government of Mexico had decided to centralize power, eliminate racial requirements for citizenship, and abolish slavery. And there's been a very heavy 
emphasis on this abolishment of slavery recently. More from the article. Tejanos lobbied for slavery because settlers such as Stephen Austin, known as the father of Texas, offered them cheap land for cotton plantations and security from the Comanche, who were raiding ranches and taking hostages. Canizares Esquires said Mexican troops under President General Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna were not coming to take freedom from the Texans, but rather to liberate slaves on East Texas plantations. He called the Alamo the largest statue to the Confederacy in this country. Canizares Esquires said it's a battle over slavery. It is telling that Trump goes to Alamo now. It summarizes the history of white supremacy in this country by that very choice and the fact that the real history of the Alamo is completely ignored in textbooks and classrooms and history books. These statements in the article by Canizares Esquire, more than bungers, and Bunger might agree 100% with them, I can't say he doesn't, seems to be the message that has really angered people in recent history. In the article, Bunger's statements were, for the most part, actually much milder. The article says that Bunger said, It is more likely that the Texas Revolution was caused by the clash between centralism and federalism than slavery. But making slavery as secure as possible was a priority when the Republic of Texas was formed. And that, I agree with that. It, it, it's, it's true. He made these statements as a historian who has spent years thinking and questioning the past. And historically speaking, I think most historians would agree with that last statement. It was when the article commented on what was currently happening with President Trump's visit to Alamo, Texas, that he, in effect, stepped out of the role of historian talking about the past into the role of a scholar commenting on current events. Now, there's nothing insidious in this, but there is a distinction between talking about the past and talking about the present. And then the article closed with stating that Bunger, quote, agreed that Trump, who referred to some Mexican immigrants as criminals and rapists during the 2015 announcement of his presidential campaign, is likely trying to invoke the myth of the battle without acknowledging the involvement of Mexican-Americans. He wants to sort of tap into this theme of the Alamo as a defining moment in American history and the triumph of Anglo-Saxon civilization and the move west. He said, quote, it is again tapping into a defense of white privilege, end quote. This, I speculate, is what really lit some fires. That was his opinion based on years of scholarship, Others might have the opinion that there was not that much thought or understanding involved in appearing at Alamo, Texas. Alamo, Texas is a city of about 20,000 people in the Rio Grande Valley on the border, which is where the border wall was being built that the president was celebrating. The author of the article did a good job of using the historian's statements and through some mental gymnastics created a controversy that might not have been anything more than speculation. The author had a goal and achieved it in promoting an agenda. Neither of the professors need me to defend them, and I'm not trying to. I doubt they see a reason for it. So that's not what I'm trying to do. However, I think 
that there are deeper things going on here than a short USA Today article can convey. Now, in the future, we're going to be looking at what it means to think like a historian. And a big part of that is to evaluate your source and question the author's motive, reliability, and agenda. The author's motive and agenda for this article are clear. I encourage you to apply this to everything you read or listen to. And that's one of the reasons for these several Lesson Zero episodes, to make you aware of my motives, agenda, and qualifications. And as I said, I don't need to defend or attack Dr. Bunger. He said what he said. And what I would like is a greater elaboration and some context to these little short sentences. But I do have some thoughts, and I reached out to some other people, and they gave me their thoughts. Now, sometimes you can be so close to something, so interested and invested in something, that you forget that everyone else isn't. Due to that, when communicating something your peers already understand, it's easy to be misunderstood or come across as insensitive. Now, I'm not saying that's what he was doing. He might have intended it to come across as it did. Now, it seems that in the case, in some situations when people relate something that seems commonplace, there is a disconnect between the people that deal with history on a very deep level and for everyone else whose basic understanding of a topic is more tied to the vast common historical memory or common knowledge held by society regarding a topic. For many, Columbus is the Columbus of collective memory, an adventurer who opened the door for the creation of the modern world. For others, he is representative of the forces of colonialism and genocide. Neither point of view is entirely right or wrong. Largely, it's a matter of perspective and how the story of history is framed or constructed. When an academic historian like Dr. Walter Bunger says that the Alamo became a symbol for the white supremacy in the early 1900s, he isn't attacking the people who fought and died for Texas and the people that currently look at the Alamo as part of a heroic struggle. At least I don't think he is. But what the public hears is an attack. There is a breakdown in communication and understanding. And situations like this provide ammunition for people fighting on a particular side of the culture wars. As Melvin Edwards has communicated to me they aren't necessarily fighting over history in this thing they are fighting over the present and for power he believes that they are quote also fighting over the right to control the narrative especially if it seems like a long standing and accepted fact counter narratives are not welcome John Willingham when I asked his thoughts he shared this statement. He said, I agree that Bunger's remarks are an excellent example of someone speaking to a popular audience via the media from a wealth of historical knowledge about what the Alamo became, only to be accused of making a woke attack on the Alamo and its heroes. Neither the audience nor the media possess the depth and detail of his perspective. My suspicion is that his full statements to the media were more detailed and far less sensational than they were reported to have been. The media have a hard time with knowledgeable historians because the latter acknowledge complications and contradictions, while the former have to or want to condense and simplify. 
then the culture warriors seize on the simplified and sensational and ignore that Bunger was talking about what the Alamo became, and then they present it as his saying what the Alamo was. This kind of misunderstanding is, I believe, rooted in the idea that history is only what was and can never change. But what is known of an event contemporaneously is, in fact, often quite limited and lacking in perspective. More evidence emerges. Different peoples review it. Consequences occur across time and must be taken into account. Some of this is common sense. After all, what we thought about our actions at age 18 when we were 18 can be sharply at odds with what we think of those actions now. Consequences cannot be separated from original events, and consequences are ongoing. Thus, history is inherently dynamic. Those who cling to what history was for them as young men and women or hold hard to what is meant for them and their ancestors are the very ones who are most likely to discount the ongoing consequences. But for historians who are acutely aware of history's dynamic nature, there is an additional challenge in seeing dire consequences that the historical actors did not see. How much negative judgment is appropriate in our present? It's extremely challenging to walk this tightrope. Balanced judgment is elusive for either side, but I suspect more difficult for those who are bound for various reasons to what supposedly was. Now, that was a long statement I shared by Mr. Willingham, but I thought it was some really perceptive insight, and I wanted to quote it entirely. Now, those are definitely all ideas. Others see Dr. Bunger's actions differently. Michelle Haas of Texas History Trust wrote to me that Walter Bunger was out there saying some wild stuff in the press and there was no competition of ideas among the academics. Zero pushback. Those who didn't agree with the deconstructionists weren't doing anything and the deconstructionists wouldn't debate even if anyone had asked. Meaning, when approached after saying a comment like this, there was no conversation. There was no debate. There was nothing being done at all. Now, that's one of the reasons she became involved in the issues facing the TSHA and promoting white supremacist history was not one of the reasons. And that's why there needs to be a debate and real communication regarding the differences. There do not need to be like knee-jerk accusations by either side calling people of names and this, that, and the other. But what is missing here is any kind of meaningful work to figure out each other's points of view. I've seen lots of name-calling, but I haven't seen any real discussion. There has been pushback against people for sharing their thoughts regarding the differences if the people speaking out are an academic or hold a college or graduate degree. And I consider this approach to be completely wrong. Learning, knowledge, and the ability to understand are not contingent on a degree. For an academic historian's response to a question 
be a question of someone's level of education compared to theirs, then that is a flippant dismissal and the avoidance of taking advantage of the opportunity to raise the level of conversation and share bona fide reasons for the positions they hold. Now, I went to graduate school, got my master's degree. I even considered trying to work towards a PhD. But at that time, I realized that at that time, it wasn't the world for me. Having gone through that, I do have an understanding of what's involved. And it's a lot of work, but I don't look at people with credentials as being better than anyone else. I respect people by the work they produce, not their level of education. That's one of the things I stress as much as I can. I've known people with eighth grade educations that were more successful and knowledgeable about what they're interested in than people with graduate degrees at times. Why? Because they worked hard, stayed curious, and never stopped learning. Degrees don't equate with intelligence. It is an accomplishment. It does verify that you have the basis for sharing and teaching and understanding something. But a curious mind and a library card can get anyone a great education. Elitism never helps win arguments in my book. If you feel your dedication to a subject for 5, 10, 25 years gives you a better understanding, then you need to develop the skill of sharing the evidence behind your ideas. Some professionals' lack of ability to communicate with the public is just as big a contributor to the problems we face as the public's lack of knowledge concerning that subject. The two are not independent. Now, if Bunger upset some people, the authors of Forget the Alamo basically stepped in and stepped up and did far worse than what Ozzy Osbourne did when he urinated on the Alamo site several, several years ago. Now, while the rage against this book, Forget the Alamo, is burning, the state of Texas decided to take action in response to the negativity. We're moving on here to another topic in the Texas History Wars, and that is the work of the 1836 Commission, or the 1836 Project, as it is sometimes referred to. It was also created in 2021 with the passage and signing of House Bill 2497. The bill directed the committee to tell the story of, quote, a legacy of economic prosperity. This commission and its work also faced heavy criticism for promoting a whitewashed version of history. We're going to talk about that in the future. But this all gets us back in the timeline now. Those are past events, and I didn't even cover everything I could have brought up. That gets us back in the timeline to the 2023 issues faced by the Texas State Historical Association. And I think that's a very good place for me to take a break, catch a breath, and then we'll continue with our investigation of this topic. And I I really did take a break there in recording this episode because this is a long one and I'm not even really getting into it that deep yet because there's a lot more that's going to be covered in the next episode. But I want to be thorough. I don't like having extremely long episodes, but I'm going to push through and get this one done and uh, get the next one out pretty soon, too, because uh, we're focusing mostly on one side and we'll look at some other stuff on the other side in the next one. 
Now, as a member of the Texas State Historical Association, I'm used to getting emails regarding several events and opportunities and things going on. But on June 9th, 2023, I opened the Texas History Lessons email and found a message sent to all members from Executive Director J.P. Bryan that addressed what was going on. Under a heading stating, Your Texas, Your History, the email began with Mr. Bryan thanking the TSHA members for their continued dedication to the Texas State Historical Association as valued members active participants in our programs and avid readers of our publications. He continued by sharing that he had been involved with the TSHA for 63 years of his life and that he deeply values the shared commitment to preserving and promoting Texas history. He had served as president, as I said earlier, in 1982 and 1983 His uncle, Guy and Brian, was an original founder of the organization in 1897. There is no doubt Mr. Brian's commitment and care for Texas history. He went on to say that the board appointed him executive director on October 21st, 2022, and he had offered his services for a salary of $1 per year. Now, Michelle Haas of Copano Bay Press and the Texas History Trust and a friend of the podcast wrote the following regarding Mr. Bryan becoming the executive director. Quote, the Texas State Historical Association was in the red again. They had a chief historian not well liked by the public whose contract was up and who was overdue for a job evaluation. They had an executive director on the way out. They had a board not quite in compliance with the organization's bylaws. Enter J.P. Bryan, Jr., Texas history preservationist, collector, philanthropist, founder of the Bryan Museum, retired oil man. And he came in and helped, at expense to himself, try to get the finances of the organization straightened up and correct. Now, in his email, Mr. Bryan next refers to the events at the 2023 annual meeting that was held in El Paso and articles about the TSHA in the news media. Now, the February meeting was the 127th annual meeting of the TSHA, and it was filled with excitement. It involved a resolution that came from the floor and which was supported by academic board members that wanted to, quote, Acknowledge that we are meeting on the indigenous lands of Turtle Island, the ancestral name for what now is called North America, end quote. This did not sit well with some attendees. The feeling was among some that the progressive history and liberal ideas reflected in the resolution showed how academics were out of control. Also at the meeting, the TSHA was feeling open seats to the board. The nominating committee suggested its choices, and Mr. Bryan suggested that they also consider a nomination from the floor of Wallace Jefferson, the first black Texas Supreme Court justice and a non-academic. The traditionalists considered the person nominated by the committee to be an academic, and in their opinion, that would throw the board out of balance with a membership of 12 to 8. 
when this happened, according to accounts, you can read things got a little bit heated. The person selected by the nominating committee, who I've mentioned before, was Mary Jo O'Rear, and she won the position instead of Jefferson. Brian and others felt that they needed to act. According to Texas Monthly, Brian stated it's just not the way the organization was designed, and I think it's not healthy. We need the professional academics input. They're the ones that are, in theory, doing the research all the time. But there are a lot of good non-academic historians out there, too. I want to hear what they've got to say. And I want them to feel welcome in our organization. This is a pretty good statement and attitude. And I hope he means this. His detractors say he doesn't. The Texas Monthly article focusing on these events shared that Brian also knew what an unbalanced board meant for him personally. His job was on the line. The board brought him in as an unpaid volunteer executive director last fall to steer TSHA towards financial health. This is where I got the information about how membership had plummeted from a high of 5,000 in the past decade to the current 2,500 owing to what some traditionalist members identify as a tax on beloved Texas figures or to what progressive members identify as a failure to engage young Texans. Regardless of the cause, many recognize Brian's business acumen. He has been an executive at several oil companies and connections to wealthy donors as assets for rejuvenating the association. But early in his tenure, many academic board members questioned his authority to make certain staffing and publishing decisions. Indeed, in late April, Jones, the board president, called an emergency in-person-only board meeting in San Marcos to discuss the executive director's performance and presumably terminate him if she got enough votes. A once-sleepy organization was about to be thrown into turmoil, end quote. In his email, Mr. Bryan then stressed that despite the news articles crying out that Texas history is being destroyed and needing saved by both sides of the argument, his focus is on resolving the unbalanced composition of our board of directors between non-academic and academic members. Despite Texas State Historical Association bylaws having always required a balance between non-academic and academic members, the board has operated in recent years with academics having the majority with a current 12 to 8 academic versus non-academic mix, end quote. I'll add that while that does seem to be the current status of the board, others do argue that it's more closely balanced depending on what and how you define academic as. One of the people some call an academic holds a PhD, which to some would fit the definition, but that same person has also been involved in education at the public school level, which means for others that the person is not an academic. We're going to see very soon how this plays out because they're supposed to go into mediation very soon ahead of the, I think it's September court date. Mr. Bryan then said in the email that when he became the executive director, he immediately assessed the TSHA's financial and personnel situation and found that there was an evident need for immediate funding 
and long-term financial planning. The TSHA had not prepared an audited financial statement for seven years, which Mr. Bryan says severely hindered the ability to raise funds and attract new members. He stresses that a predominantly academic board continually overlooks or undervalues the practical aspects of financial operations and business matters that are critical to an organization's success. Non-academic board members bring the needed business acumen, financial prudence, and real-world experience that is missing under academic majority. He then explained the actions that he took at his own expense to rectify the financial issues. Brian went on to explain that prior to the business meeting in El Paso, the issue of the bylaw violation regarding the unbalanced board was brought to the attention of the board of directors to seek a resolution to the imbalance of board members, but they refused to take any corrective action. Instead, at the business meeting, a non-academic member nominee was rejected, and yet another academic was appointed to the board. This only further exacerbated the issue of an unbalanced board and made clear that there was no intent to abide by organizational bylaws. That was what we just went into detail looking at about the the meeting. That gets us back to the date of May 1st, when President Nancy Baker Jones called an emergency in-person meeting of the board in San Marcos. The agenda included plans to eliminate the executive director's position altogether and extend Chief Historian Walter Bunger's role. Mr. Bryan then included the agenda for the May 1st meeting under the heading, an action of the Board of Directors of the Texas State Historical Association to design a new leadership structure. In A, the context of the transition in which TSHA is hiring a new chief historian in coordination with University of Texas at Austin History Department. B, the interest of the long-term consistency and strength of the association's mission, procedures, and policies. C, the historical context of the associations having traditionally had a unitary leadership structure. D, in support of continuing cooperation with University of Texas at Austin History Department. And E, in the association's best interests overall, the board of directors agrees to create a new leadership structure to include both the new chief historian and a new design for executive functions that will no longer be conceptualized as executive director. This new leadership structure will be created by a presidential committee that will study options currently serving well in similar institutions or created anew to fit the particular needs of the association. The new leadership structure will be designed in consultation with the Department of History, and will be submitted to the full board of directors for approval before a new chief historian is named. As a result, the board of directors does, simultaneous to approving this action, declare vacated the position of the current volunteer director with deep thanks and appreciation to the incumbent, J.P. Bryan, for having offered his time, energy, knowledge, dedication, and resources, personnel, and monetary to help correct and stabilize the financial situation that caused him generously to volunteer to serve on October 10th, 2022. 
when they met to do this, to make this change in organizational structure, this is when things started to get really ugly in the story. Brian went, and this is when he sought the injunction, and Judge Kerry Navis issued a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction halting this meeting that would have approved this act of restructuring and eliminating his position as executive director. They thanked him for what he did, but basically were saying, we are making some changes and you will no longer be necessary. A trial has now been scheduled for September 11th to address the issue of the improperly constituted board in the opinion of some. And this claim is based on bylaw article 12. Now, these events have been, I've tried to cover it here. And they've also been pretty well covered in several news articles, especially the one in Texas Monthly that I've been using. And Nevis stated, I will point out that it is not restraining anyone from reaching out and resolving this in some way, shape, or form. And he's talking about the September 11th trial date. And he continued and said, I find this to be a very sad matter, and I concur with that 100%. An organization of the status and importance to Texas should be taken into account. Nevis said, I find it very sad that it's reached this point, that this very venerable institution is involved in this kind of stuff. It's a sign of the times, and I find it very distressing. Mr. Bryan closed the email by saying a lawsuit is nothing anyone wants. Unfortunately, I was left no choice as the board overwhelmed by academic interests showed no intention of adhering to the bylaws and was instead aggressively moving forward with actions that would forever change the TSHA, further exposing it to financial disaster and academic bias. Mr. Bryan continued by saying that it is my hope that litigation can be avoided and resolution can be found outside the courts, but it is vital that we have balanced representation of both academics and non-academics to ensure a comprehensive historical narrative as well as responsible organizational governance. It promotes a holistic approach to history, considers the financial sustainability of the organization the implementation of strategic plans and the overall well-being of TSHA and its future. Academic perspectives are undoubtedly valuable, but it is equally important to have a diverse range of voices and expertise, including those from non-academic backgrounds that can provide balance to historical perspectives. An overemphasis on academic pursuits and prioritizing scholarly interests can inadvertently limit our understanding and representation of the vibrant and multifaceted culture that thrives within Texas history. This can result in the oversight of the contributions from different communities, their unique experiences, and the historical aspects that shape the cultural landscape of Texas. Now, this is all from Mr. Bryan's email. And he continued by saying, I urge all of you who love Texas history 
to support our efforts in rectifying the board's composition by actively participating in our organization and contributing through membership and donations. Together, we can uphold the integrity of TSHA, safeguard our financial operations, and create a more inclusive representation of Texas history and culture. All for Texas, always. That's how he ended it. This email. Now, in order to have a better understanding of both sides of the divide, I reached out to people on both sides, and I listened, and I I think I learned quite a bit. I reached out to Michelle Haas, who I mentioned before, to give me a better understanding of her views, and she was very helpful and informative. I think her replies to my question are pretty well thought out and illustrate a commitment to history and an honest perspective of where Mr. Bryan and others stand. First, I asked, how do you respond when people accuse you and others, historians, of upholding the white supremacy narrative or heroic Anglo narrative? And she replied by saying, my answer depends on the argument presented. If their angle is along the lines of, we only teach the heroic Anglo narrative, she says hogwash. It ain't 1960, and it's a shame that some must pretend that we teach our or write history as though it is. Recently, a professor at UT Arlington attempted to demonstrate how racist and dismissive historians have been towards Tejano statesman Lorenzo de Zavala. To prove his claim, he offered up the index of Papers of the Texas Revolution. And under the entry for Zavala, one finds too numerous to list. What this professor omitted to his audience of college students, among other things, was the fact that index entries for high-profile Anglo men like David G. Burnett and pivotal landmarks like the Brazos River also were too numerous to list. She added, You can't be a crusader without a crusade. They must rely on how our curriculum history books failed in the past to paint themselves as advocates in the present. I personally prefer to celebrate how many fantastic books the last 40 years have given us on the history of women, Tejanos, and black Texans. And that was the end of that answer. These are pretty fair points. Often it it appears that critics don't think that the people they are criticizing have adapted and embraced elements of the revisionism that's occurred in the last several decades. She also continued by writing, when I am personally accused of upholding some white supremacy narrative, I ask for proof. The proof is usually couched as, quote, you criticize so-and-so who doesn't focus on your preferred narrative. And she said, the fact that I have been critical of the works of some historians whose careers are race-centric doesn't mean I'm the one obsessed with race. Fact is, the founding fathers of Texas were predominantly Anglo. That's neither a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. Again, it's not 1960. We have an expansive narrative now that continues to expand. Talking about people who contributed significantly to the history of Texas drawing on primary documents without hyper-focus on race. That's her 
preferred narrative, and it has nothing to do with skin color. I think that's a very fair and detailed answer that needs to be shared. So I'm sharing it. And I also asked another question. I said, why is the issue of balance between academic and non-academic historians on the board so important? And again, Michelle Haas shared a very good answer that I'm going to share here. I'm letting using her words because she has a really good understanding of this perspective. She wrote, the balance on the TSHA board has been there since the founding of the organization. Lay historians and the public were not supposed to be othered, to borrow a phrase. And for about a century, the public attended the annual meeting and happily supported and trusted the organization because they felt welcome. In the modern TSHA, the board balance is critical to the financial stability of the organization. Most academics are not known for their business acumen ability to raise funds or knowledge of how the public views our history. I think that's an important point she's making there. What the public views about our history and what the academics view there is sometimes it is at odds at times. And I'm going to be looking into that really good detail in the next couple of episodes pretty soon. And she continued. Likewise, most business people aren't known for their encyclopedic knowledge of Texas history or scholarly writing of it. That's another good point. Both skill sets are required to keep a nonprofit history organization thriving. Board balance also supports viewpoint diversity in an organization, which is vital to serving the public interest. The balance was codified in the bylaws for these reasons, and probably others that I'm missing. And the terms academic and non-academic were clearly defined in the interest of preserving this balance. I appreciate all the people that have helped me by writing to me and sharing their points of view. I've mentioned several people already in this episode, especially uh, Michelle Haas for giving me that detailed, uh, those detailed answers to those two questions. And I think it's important to put out as much information and the explanations as to why and what people actually think rather than just believe the little snippets that are in the media and the little snippets that are in social media and the accusations that are out there. Try to understand these, everybody involved, they're real people and they do have points of view. And I appreciate this perspective that, that, uh, and the generosity of her time to, to help me understand what's going on here. Um, so I've tried it. It's, I've gone back and forth, but for the most part, I've been trying to focus on the case made by one side of the divide and the lawsuit. And I, like I said, I think there are some very, very important points that I've shared that from people that have helped me understand this. And I think they should be heard and considered with a sincere attempt to understand what is being shared without immediately attempting to find ways to tear them apart. Between Mr. Bryan's statements and other people's statements and what I just read, people would immediately say, well, that's not true. They don't actually believe that. My response to that criticism is, well, do you like it when they say the same thing about you? Because I've talked to people on the other side of the issue that have a deep love and deep concern for Texas history. 
And they say the same things about the people on this side. It's it's a back and forth of accusation and ignoring intent. What's really going on? We'll find out. Like I said at the beginning, I'm not involved other than the fact that I've reached out to people to try to understand. But to be fair, there is another side that's being presented. And in the next episode, we're going to dig into them. And uh, for those that have made it to the end of this lengthy, oversized episode, um, it could have been a lot longer. I could have just done it all at once, but I don't know if my voice could hold up to much more. So again, I want to thank everybody, everybody that's listening that has helped me answer a question on either through email or on social media when I've reached out. Everybody that's helped me, I appreciate you all tremendously. And, you know, there's news that the this will be going to mediation, and I really hope it comes out positive from the mediation and that it doesn't actually have to go to court. From what I understand is that a lot of people aren't holding their breaths that anything's going to actually happen. I really hope people try. If everybody on both sides that tells me they care about Texas history really cares, let's try to get to the base and a, at least a, some semblance of agreement because there has to be some kind of agreement here and compromise. And uh, like I said, we'll see what happens. But that's the beginning, and we'll uh, be paying attention to what happens with that. So thanks again to everybody that has uh, taken their time to share with me and educate me and give me their perspectives, because that's what's important. Context and uh, explanation sometimes about what is actually meant and what is the, the goals are. And... Uh, Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to Derek McClendon for sharing the music. That is the theme music. Thanks to Patreon supporters. Thanks to people that have clicked on that link over the last year or so and bought me a cup of coffee. And uh, every little bit has helped in uh, getting books and other supplies for the podcast. And uh, yeah. Wow, this is a long one. Uh <laughs> apologize for that I, I like to shoot for 20 to 30 minutes and this is just uh i knew it was going to take a lot take a lot of uh time and uh, i hope i framed it in a way that kind of makes sense my intent was to mostly show one side of what's going on and the ultimate goal is yeah we're a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of what i brought up a lot of what other people have brought up is something bigger than just history. It's the, it's the Texas thing. It's it's it is this self created and self conscious thing that we are in care of, created long ago and is still being shaped. And yeah, everybody has a, should have a voice because it is our history, and that's why I say that uh, and encourage you to consider becoming a member of the Texas State Historical Association if you have a care and a love for Texas history. So since I mentioned him in this episode, I, I'm going to play a song as it changes by Seth Jones. 
He has new music out under the name Americarnage. So go check that out. Thanks again, everybody. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Adios. Yes.